0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Joseph, and I just wanted to say that I hope you enjoy the episode you're about to listen to. If you do, I kindly ask that you tell a friend about detoxicity. Even better, please rate, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you're using to listen. I'm always on the hunt for new and interesting guests, and I like keeping in touch with those of you who listen, so if you have a recommendation for a guest, or if you just want to know what I do day to day, follow me on Twitter at Tis Mike Joseph, or on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, or both. You can even email me at DetoxPod at gmail dot com. On a less self promotional tack, I really hope that you and yours are keeping yourselves and others safe during this pandemic. And even if you listen to this after the pandemic is over, there is no greater quality, in my opinion, than people who are empathetic and kind to others. Hell, it's a big reason I do this podcast in the first place. Enjoy the show and be well. Ned Donovan is an actor, singer, and creative multi-hyphenate, surprise, originally from Maine and now, well, in non-COVID times, making his home in New York City. He currently is a cast member of the D&D-related podcast Encounter Party, runs a website for theater professionals called Audition Cat, and is also developing a podcast based around eulogies. Ned also has a pretty interesting past, having spent time as a professional stunt coordinator, We get into that during our discussion, but we also talk about growing up with an addict parent, learning to understand and then use privilege for good, and finding personal and professional catharsis after a series of personal tragedies left him reeling. So uh, check out Ned's story.
1: Hey, everybody out there. My name is Ned Donovan. I'm an actor, writer, entrepreneur, uh, person who tries to execute on ideas and generally approach the world in a mindful way person.
0: That is perfect. So which of those things would come first on that list? In
1: a perfect world or today?
0: Either. We're not
1: getting no perfect world. That's 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 just not happening. In a perfect world, I would be an actor, period, bar none. Uh, That's what I want to do. It's what I went to school for. It's what I, I spent most of my career doing until some stuff had to take me away from the industry. I miss it dearly. I try to get back to it as much as possible. So actor is always the thing I lead with. In terms of being a writer, I discovered that I love to write when I had to leave acting for a little bit. It became kind of my outlet to not being able to be creative anymore. In terms of entrepreneur, I think they're all kind of intertwined, but I just constantly see things that I wish there was other versions of or better ideas for, or I see something that seems so obvious that no one's doing, and then I just get excited to do it. And that exists in kind of a wide range of fields, including acting and writing, but also I have a tech company trying to fill a need for professional performers that I don't see exists right now. I have a sports journalism startup where it's all artists writing about sports because I feel like the, the perspective of kind of a professional arts background changes the way you interact with the world of professional sports pretty highly so I'm kind of all over the map I'm a podcaster which is how you and I connected yes um, and so so the shortest answer is like the entrepreneur part of my brain has always been there I've always been making projects and creating concepts and inside the arts that's generally not known as an entrepreneur maybe it's called a multi-hyphenate yeah um, but outside of the arts yeah I was in a, a an interview for like a Big top company who will remain nameless in case they ever get mad at me for telling this story. And uh, a guy looked at my resume and he called me the most pompous thing I've ever heard. And oh, I geez. decided I needed it. And it's now my LinkedIn bio and it's factotum. And factotum just means multi hyphen it, but for bougie people. <laughs> So my LinkedIn now says I am a, a multi-hyphenate and a factotum. And those are technically synonymous. But I've gone into job interviews where recruiters are like, ooh, factotum, I love that. I'll be like,
0: Do, Do you, you really know what that means?
1: It sounds dreadful. I bet you Googled it and thought it sounded cool, but I think it makes me sound like an
0: ass. That it does feel a little, a little bougie. Mm-hmm even saying multi hyphenate feels and i have also used that term for myself but it does sound a little pompous it does i'm not, I'm not mad at it
1: no but. There's a, another wonderful podcaster, shout out to Michael Kushner, who really owns, he has a a, a whole thing called Dear multi where he's trying to inspire artists to be less focused and more multi-hyphenated. And so I feel like it's starting to have a resurgence of claim back for those of us that don't mean it in a shitty way. Right. But I do agree that there was a period of time where people would be like, I'm a multi-hyphenate, and all of us would be like, Ugh. Yeah, "Yeah, whatever.
0: <laughs> it's something I think that's come to prominence in maybe the last five years because everybody's got to have a hustle on top of their real hustle. And right, then- Because,
1: that- uh, spoiler, salaries don't cover living anymore. <laughs> and
0: also some people just aren't satisfied with doing one thing. True. So, And
1: I think that's nice. And I also think industries are evolving to a place where being a go-getter is more respected, especially in kind of creative fields. And a lot of times people that I meet that are self-described as multi-hyphenates are that way because the art that they want to be making, no one's giving them the space to make. And they've decided to take the matters into their own hands and they've learned a bunch of extra skills to pull that off. And I find that very inspiring.
0: It is super inspiring. When I was growing up, I kind of felt like you could only do one thing. Like you're only allowed to do one thing professionally Sure. and post internet. I I do think technology makes it easier to do more than one thing, but it's not uncommon now to, it hasn't been for maybe the last 10 years because it was like, oh, I'm a blogger and I do this other job and I do this other job and I'm a musician and I do this other job and now it's fairly common, at least it's common among the people that I speak to, I feel like everybody that's been interviewed for this podcast is a multi hyphenate.
1: Mm. I, I really think that there's something. I think that the, the the people I like to surround myself by are the people who want to solve problems. They don't know how to. And I get very excited when people's answer to solving a problem. They don't know how to is one of two things either oh, I have someone that I would love to work with that we can bring in to solve this problem. Or that feels like something I'd like to learn. Let's go for it. Like both of those excite me as solutions to problems rather than being like, oh, we got to go. It's just like when when a roadblock comes up where no one in the group knows how to solve a problem and the answer is like, well, and they throw their hands in the air, that's when I'm like, <laughs> no.
0: Find a way to fix it. Yeah. So, so
1: you are from Maine. I am. I am born and raised in Portland, Maine, New York. I love you. I live in you and the world I get to experience through you is wonderful. But if I could do all the same things in Portland, Maine, I would leave your ass behind in a heartbeat.
0: See, I've been to Portland, Maine a number of times. Hey, and I love Portland. It's very this small. And I don't mean for this to sound condescending. It's very quaint. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The one thing about Portland that troubles me Ain't no black people there.
1: Fun, fun fact for Maine: <laughs> there's more black people there than anywhere else, which oh, only I would speaks imagine. to
0: only speaks
1: to Maine. It yes. is not meant to be a comfort. Yes,
0: Maine is pretty fucking white. Oh, it is so white.
1: <laughs> it is. It is very, very, very white. I think. I think there. When I was in college, there was like either a census or a study taken, and it was like ninety six and a half percent white. And then like the the communities of color added together something like 92% of them lived in either Portland or Lewiston, Maine and nowhere else. And it's a big state, Right. <laughs> like they should be in other places. If it was, yes, I agree with your concern.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful town though. Lovely place. What was it like growing up in Maine?
1: I was raised as like an upper middle-class white kid who went to private school. I come from a good amount of money, but my specific parents were both my dad was a community college professor and my mom was a US history teacher at a at a private high school and I got to go to that school for practically nothing. And so like I was raised as a relatively upper class kid but like without the funding for it. Like it was a weird thing. Like I felt like a rich kid and then sometimes my mom would be like heads up you're not a rich kid and I'd be like but like Aren't I? <laughs> and you know, I went to private college. So so my experience in Maine was different than the average bear, I would say, because I was sort of raised in the lap of luxury. But I, I I loved growing up in Maine. It's still my favorite place on earth. I mean, I'm here now and wandering around outside. Like the nature, the experience, the people seem to be pretty nice overall when I interact with them. I I do love it here, despite winters. Actually, including winters. I love really? winter. I do. Ned. My dude, I I grew up in Portland, Maine. I went to college in Ithaca, New York. I've only known winter.
0: I've also only known winter. The four states I've lived in are Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and Michigan. Oh my dude. But I hate winter.
1: (laughs) Sure. I love it. And anytime it is over 80 degrees, I'm a miserable human. Really? Yeah.
0: Are you just, I mean, I'm looking at you now. You are, you are a pale individual.
1: My, I I I look like I stepped out of Northern Ireland and into
0: a stereotype. I mean, your name is Ned Donovan.
1: It is Ned, and and an actual true fact about my family is that they dropped the O from O Donovan at Ellis Island. <laughs> like like we're as stereotypical as they come, man. They my, should just give my you dad, like a box dad, of Lucky
0: Charms in a U two CD.
1: Oh my God, the the my dad, the Donovan side of the family grew up just outside of Boston. And my grandfather ran Donovan's Liquor Store on Route 1 in Linfield, Massachusetts. And when I was in, when I got to the city, I met a new friend who's from Linfield. And she's like, oh, Donovan, my favorite liquor store as a kid was called Donovan's. And I was like, as a kid? And she was like, oh, I had a fake ID. And I was like, that's my
0: family store. Just playing into those stereotypes. <laughs> we are not. We we go hard. I hear that. So you're, you explained your upbringing. Was there ever a point when like the reality of what you were living and your presumed sort of privileged existence as as it, the whole not being an upper middle class person, but living an upper middle class lifestyle, did those clash or was there like a day of reckoning or a moment of reckoning for any of that stuff?
1: I wish I could say yes, honestly. Like I wish I could say I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, I get it. But the the fact is like, I as a an affable white dude have a pretty easy time navigating my way through this world my school that i went to so i went to the same private school from beginning preschool all the way through 12th 12th grade which oh, was wow. 15 and a half years at the same school and and so the school tried really hard to be like air quotes woke i i love Wayne Fleet dearly I shout them out because I do think they are an incredible education for people. I think that they've had a hard time recently reckoning with their own unbelievably white privileged build as a school and they're working really hard to kind of combat that right now, sometimes successfully, other times like a clunker. And one of the ways that they do that is there's a they spent a lot of time giving a good amount of financial aid to students of color who they could get to come to the school so that they could try and diversify the the student body. And I spent a lot of my life thinking that that made me worldly. <laughs> like, like I spent a lot of my childhood being like, I have black friends. Look at right. me. I'm so great. And it really wasn't until I got to college and really started like coming to terms with a lot of like ingrained, internalized, socialized racism that was just like built into my thinking and my thought process and talking to people that I really started to have an understanding of like the world I'd been raised in and the world that that world tried to be and the world I wanted to live in weren't connected kind of in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And I do think that the school that I grew up at thought at the time it was in a very specific place of like teaching kids to be worldly and better people overall to everyone. And I think they failed on a lot of factors that I think a lot of students of color who've graduated from the school have really brought to the school's attention in the last couple of years. And the school is trying hard to reckon with that learning about their own failures. And additionally, I was raised in this kind of a bubble of, of upper class, privilege and and access and things like that, that I really got a wonderful, incredible education. And I think it instilled a lot of values in me that I didn't actually learn to apply until I got out of the bubble. So I think it gave me the foundation to be a person who could recognize the differences between the world I wanted to walk in and the world I was walking in, but it didn't help me actually find it. It took people from a different bubble going to college, and even then was a very upper-class private school upbringing, but having access to humans who could really help shatter my veneer for myself, it took a long road of me kind of learning and unlearning, trying to hold on to the good that was in there while unlearning a lot of the bad that I hadn't realized was kind of built into my day-to-day.
0: There is a world of people who mean well when it comes to things like equity, and they know all the buzzwords and they know everything to say, but they have a lot of, tr- and they believe that they truly are equitable, but they have a lot of trouble putting that into actual practice.
1: Well-intentioned white people? Perfect. Well, <laughs> well-intentioned white people are, are sometimes the bane of my existence, especially because I grew up such a well-intentioned white person that I often have to remind myself Over and over and over again, that like I'm not allowed to give myself props for being a person who's trying to make the world a better place in my own way. Like a lot of my instincts are so built in this like self aggrandizing woke white person upbringing that I have to like constantly remind myself it's a disaster. There's a great movie that I love. This is a weird tangent, but I promise for the three listeners who understand what I'm talking about, they'll dig it. It's called Cats Don't Dance, it's an animated musical from the late 90s. And yeah, I know we're going on a thing. And it's How an alleg- am I not
0: aware of this.
1: It's an allegory for racism in Hollywood about animals trying to get cast in movies and only being allowed to play animals. And that's the 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 movie. And uh, you know, I didn't really pick up on its inner workings until much later because I kept watching it because it's one of my favorite films. But that's what the base of the movie is and there's a point where it's really low and and the the humans have kicked out all the animals and it's really bad and he gets on a bus to go home to like his small town in Indiana or wherever where he's from and he's a cat and he's on the animal and the bus driver is this like super nice guy who's like trying to make conversation to be friends with him because it's just the two of them on this long bus ride And he's like, Did you hear about the blow up with the animals over at the studios? Like, no offense to them. I'm sure they're lovely people, but like, animals don't belong in the pictures. And he's just saying this to this cat. And it is a wild moment. And I watched it again earlier last year probably and I was like oh my god they nailed a well-intentioned white person <laughs> in like this little dumb movie about animals like this guy truly thought the best way he could connect with this animal was to remind him that his place was not in his dreams like what a wild thing and I I I have a lot of well-intentioned white person instincts. I have a lot of things kind of in my psyche. I, I, for a wide variety of reasons that maybe we'll get to or maybe we won't, like my instinct in a lot of situations. And this was true when I was a kid, especially. Is to lie and the reason is usually to protect myself for like something's really wrong but i really don't know how to say it so i'm hoping if i tell a lie that is so wild then people will call me out on that lie and then be like why did you tell that lie and then someone else discovered the problem that i'm not willing to say and it took me a long time and and to get to a place where i recognized that was true about myself and one of the things that's true about myself is because my base instinct is often to lie and I choose truth instead as a human and as like a practice in my life, the same is true with my well-intended white person-ness is I'll constantly have an instinct and I'll realize like that instinct's actually pretty racist no matter how much I think it's not. And I have to like take a second to step back and be like, what's the actual answer here that's not well-intended and white? And that's kind of my own journey that
0: I try to take through those
1: minefields.
0: It's important to... Be honest about that part of yourself, because I feel like other people will see that in them and hopefully come to the conclusion that, oh, hey, this is something I do. Also, maybe I should give that a think or a rethink.
1: I try to let it humble me whenever possible, because it definitely like I was raised in white privilege basically my entire life to the time i graduated college and then i moved to new york city where i like operated through the world of white privilege and everyone kind of let me do it because i'm like a affable white dude and having enough people call me on my shit in a in a way that frankly they never had the means to like they had no reason to and i'll be forever thankful to those people who, if I were them, I can't promise I would have shown me the same grace. And having those people coupled with, again, an education that really did instill in me a very good value and moral system that it then didn't teach me to apply, and learning to merge those identities led me to a place where I feel pretty confident in saying, like, I work very hard to not be a well-intentioned white person. I have a bunch of racist instincts that don't seem racist when I think of them. And it takes a lot of unlearning and and education of myself on a daily basis to try and
0: let those instincts die. (laughs) What did it feel like the first time somebody checked you? Were you immediately defensive? Like, what are you talking about? Or did you have the wherewithal to actually stop and think and be like, well, maybe this person's right?
1: One hundred percent. I have no idea when that moment was, so I don't have a good answer. But I feel confident, knowing me, that I was a defensive piece of shit.
0: I also think, as not even a well—that's not a well-intentioned white person characteristic solely. It's a male characteristic. Oh, like, without question. And I, I just—it's funny. I was talking to somebody else last night, and they brought up defensiveness, and for. What I think is the first time I stepped back and I thought about it, and I was like, fuck, I'm defensive, <laughs> I'm necessarily defensive sometimes. And look, I can't tell you whether that characteristic would be the same if I were a woman, but my gut tells me that part of that is a masculine uh, trait, just you know, getting your dander up when somebody tries to check you.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a pride thing. I think for me, I think if I, if I look back on all the moments where I got fiery and angry as a kid, it's because someone was telling me I was wrong and I didn't want to be wrong or, you know, you go to the, the, the hot bed of, of toxic masculinity, all the varsity sports I played and like you, wanting, were you an I, athlete? I was, I was a, a, a soccer lacrosse player.
0: Again, very white was, and <laughs> you took the words legit Ned took the words right out of my mouth That's just crawled so into my white. Brain. yes that is quite white <laughs> I don't know
1: that I would have played football if it existed in my sphere but the school I went to like I only graduated with like 50 kids so like we couldn't field a football team so we just didn't have one <laughs>
0: Fair. Uh, <laughs> I that don't know fair. if
1: I would have played it. I liked soccer, but I football is my favorite sport to watch to this day. So I assume that like had that opportunity been in my sphere, I would have played football. Speaking of toxic masculinity in a nutshell, but yeah, and and I don't know where it comes from. You know, my parents were both lovely people, and I have no interest in in. Ever pretending like I don't think that that's true. But my parents got divorced when I was very young. And at the end of middle school, my father got a job at a college in Pennsylvania and moved to Pennsylvania. And so I spent my high school years, you know, my mother was blind. And so I spent my high school years, you know, being raised by a single white blind mother. And I think a lot of my reckoning with my own toxic masculinity over time was built on like thinking back to moments when I was the only other person in that household and watching my mom get kind of like stepped on by toxic masculinity in her own life and getting mad about it, but then not recognizing how I was just doing that to other people in my life. Yeah, I I think my defensive nature and my like adrenaline rising when I get angry is purely based on like, I can't stand being wrong for pride purposes.
0: How do you get around that? I'm asking this as much for myself as anybody. So for me,
1: I am, I try very hard and I fail very often to listen wherever possible. I try to, wherever I can catch myself doing it, stamp down my instinct to want to talk in those moments and try and defend myself or or contextualize or offer an addendum, anything that like, And I do, and I fail at this constantly, as my girlfriend will tell you, all the time I'm I'm bad at this but I work very hard to try and recognize I'm bad at it when I think back on conversations because I'm a person who replays every conversation eight million times afterwards I will try to like look at those replays from an outside perspective and think about how like I would be yelling at me if I was watching someone else talk like that I'd work very hard to like catch myself doing it. And if in the moment I don't respond well, I try to like catch that later and apologize for it post-mortem. And the biggest thing for me is, has been trying to teach myself to listen more and have opinions less.
0: Am I good at it? it, No,
1: but that's my answer.
0: (laughs) But you recognize it and you're working on it. Correct. Which I think is, In terms of what people can ask for, I think that's probably the best thing that that people can ask for, that it is acknowledged and you're trying to be better. That's the hope. I hope
1: that I, I... Knowing that I will fail so often, I genuinely hope that I live a life that causes people to give me at least enough benefit of the doubt to know that when I fuck up, I'll try and learn from it because I've proven that I have elsewhere. It's a very privileged dude way of saying, I'm trying to be better. And I hope people give me grace, but that's kind of the way I'm trying to walk through the world is, is I am a loud, brash, abrasive, opinionated dude. And I work very hard to let that part of my personality, not be something that stamps other people out or down.
0: Got it. When did the loudness and brashness, or not, when did it, where did it come from?
1: I don't know. Maybe my mom, (laughs) she was loud and brash. My dad was a quiet dude. He was very introverted. But my mom, she was a brash, loud lady who controlled a room. I've always said my dad was like a genius with numbers. And my mom was like a genius at social situations. And I've always said my brother and I got 5% of each of those raw talents. And that was more than enough to make a career. And so I think it was probably learned from my mom, but I have been accused of being a loud mouth talk know-it-all since I was very, very,
0: very little.
1: So who knows where it came from? It certainly did not pop up later in life.
0: How did that loudness and brashness eventually play itself into you wanting to become a creative? Like, what lit the flame? I don't know, actually. I, I've always been someone who makes
1: stuff and i don't really know what the definition of stuff is because because honestly for a wide variety of reasons a lot of my childhood's very blurry i i i had a, a an addict parent and i was dealing with a lot of stuff like that and and i i i've suppressed or repressed or pushed down a lot of nastiness from my upbringing which is probably something i should go to therapy for but i also have a bad history with therapy so like here we are and i don't know what would have caused it Um, I think it's that my mom had such a love of the arts, and my dad had such a love of sports, and both of them encouraged me to do both always. So I, I was always encouraged to explore things I wanted to explore. And I think that naturally turned into as a very imaginative kid, you know, back up to the liar lying part earlier, like I, I, I just lent itself to getting lost in my head while walking a dog because I was writing a script or a story and just talking out to myself and you know and 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 I never really did theater as a kid. My mom loved it and I did a lot of things where like my mom was doing the church pageant so I was a king or like my mom was directing this show at the summer school up the block and so Ned was like randomly over there but it wasn't until high school that I really found myself in love with acting. And I was a terrible student because in in high school I launched a you know an a cappella group or two and I I did a bunch of varsity sports and I was in all the plays and by doing that I didn't have any time to do homework. So I would, you know, had like a C average. I've always said I'd rather be a B, a B student who gets to do everything he wants than not do the things he wants to get A's. And that was kind of my yeah. And so I realized if I was gonna get into a college. It was going to be for athletics or for acting. It was not going to be for my grades. And I realized that sports have a much lower chance of being a viable professional option than the arts, which is such a funny thing to say out loud. And so I decided to go to college for musical theater. And if we want to talk about privilege, when you're like a straight, not quite six foot dude who's athletic and at least able to move a little despite having never taken a dance class, you can get into a really good musical theater program when you're like a five, four brunette who's been doing musical theater your entire life. And like you've, been in eight dance classes a week since you were really small and you everything in your life has been tra- has been training you for this you have a much harder time getting into musical theater school than I did <laughs> and uh, doubly so if you want to attack the wild racism sure. in the industry like even worse if you start to intersect those things yeah and uh, so I-, I made stuff all through high school I arranged acapella music I ran acapella groups I got to college I started doing like student theater on the side of my studies. And I studied to be a stunt man when I was in high school and fake st- staged combat stuff. Holy and so shit. I, yeah. And so I started doing like fight directing for theater and film and things like that when I was in college. And so like, I've always been a creator of things because I always wanted to do things that weren't going to be available to me if I didn't make them myself. And that's just sort of like, compounded on itself over time to a place where now most of what I do is
0: creating my own work and bringing people along with me and hoping people like it. So that leads me to two points and I'm going to go a little bit back for one and go way back for the second one. Okay, great. One is I had no idea that people went to school to become professional stunt people. Oh, so sure. I, my mind just got blown into a whole different like, uh, thought process. Cause I'm like, oh. Well, I guess you do have to sort of learn how to do that stuff.
1: Yeah. Shout out to Mark Bedell. Mark Bedell was the tech director at my high school, and he also ran the main academy of staged combat. And I would take uh, staged combat classes once or twice a week all through high
0: school. (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah, mind blown. And the second thing, and I'm going to have a Big Brother Mike moment here. Yes. And be like, bro. You've clearly got some stuff you need to deal with. Why are you not seeing a therapist?
1: When I was a kid, middle school, so we're talking long-seated trauma here. My mother ended up in the hospital with pancreatitis from drinking too much. And my parents were divorced by that point. But because my mom was blind, like she couldn't drive us anywhere when she wasn't in the hospital. So sure. we lived in a house like right next to the school that I went to and my dad lived all the way across town and it was like actually harder on my brother and I to like try and figure out how to get to and from school through his life and all of that. And so a lot of times we actually ended up staying in the house that our mother was not in, my just like my high school brother and I like eating food that family friends would drop off into the fridge and things like that and going to school and something that was true is that my mom taught at the school I went to and having a a teacher who's an addict is something that is very stressful to administrators because even though, you know, she was not an at-school addict, it doesn't really matter. Perception is what it is. And I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it, right? Because if I talked to my friends about it, I got yelled at once because I was like talking to my friends in eighth grade or seventh grade or whatever it was about it. And the school was like, you can't do that. You're like- if those kids go and tell their parents, it's bad for your mom. And I was like, who are you looking out for here? Like, right. Like I'm allowed to talk to my friends about whatever I want. If my mom is making life choices that get her in trouble with the school, that's not really my problem, but it was my problem. And so the school very rightly put me in therapy and I had a wonderful relationship with my therapist, but there was a point kind of towards the end of my therapy stint where I started to suspect that, and I have no, Proof of this. I want to be clear. So I I don't want to accuse anyone of anything that I can prove, but I started to suspect at least that the school was getting like an update on me Mm. because it was school supplied therapy, right? And I started to suspect it because things that I thought I had only said in therapy started getting brought up in other places. And I don't know that that's true. Because again, a lot of that time's a blur to me. I think I regressed as a human into like my protective shell. And it's quite possible I talked about those things elsewhere. And I just don't remember doing it. But it ended up with this like deep distrust for me and therapy as a concept, despite really liking my therapist at the time. And I've just never gone back. And I tell all my friends to go. I'm like a huge proponent of therapy. And then I'm over here like, but I won't go because I don't trust it. And you're like, what? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm working on it.
0: I'm not going to proselytize. It's super important. And I think I just in the short time I have known you, <laughs> I feel like you would benefit from having somebody to unpack all of this stuff with.
1: I think you are 100% correct. And I'm hoping that I'm coming to a place in my life where I'm better at both acknowledging it and acting
0: on it. So getting from Maine to Ithaca to New York City to being a professional creative, that has to come with some bumps along the way because most of the creative friends I have, whether they're musicians or actors, or the comedians whatever it is like it's not a a consistent way to make money you
1: ain't wrong i spent <laughs> a good amount of my life very broke i will also say that I'm very good at wielding my privilege and turning it into opportunity. So I will honestly say that my path in this industry has been a lot less hard than almost everyone else I know. What's I arrived- an
0: example of... of- of You've that, your privilege. I am
1: rarely unemployed, either as a performer or in just like day jobs to pay my bills, and a lot of that has to do with like I'm really good at job interviews and I'm mostly really good at job interviews because I'm really comfortable talking to anyone about anything. So I can honestly say that like most of my job interviews are like me talking about the Boston Red Sox then getting a job and like that's really only true because again, I'm like an affable white dude who can like charismatically talk to people. And, you know, I used to be a job interview coach and a lot of my coaching was just teaching people to like be less nervous talking to white guys. (laughs) And like, that sucks that that's something I've never had to deal with in terms of the audition life. Like it's such a stereotype, but being like a straight, white guy in musical theater who comes off like a straight white guy has a lot of privilege. There are maybe 10 shows out there that comfortably no one will ever cast a straight white guy in. I talk a lot, but like, there's always going to be a role for a straight white guy in basically every show, regardless of who's making it. And that's a privilege from a, a numbers game because it meant that I could go to 10 to 15 auditions a week. Whereas like my friends who are five, two female and Asian, like often they're told, well, you can only be in these four shows. So they just hang out waiting for those four shows. Like, and and is that true? No, but no, casting thinks that way. And right. since casting thinks that way, it gets passed to the people who are beaten down by not getting opportunity. And so, you know, I can honestly say my path as a musical theater actor was not as complicated as so many others. I worked pretty much nonstop. Now I do think I'm very good at what I do. I don't want to belittle the amount of work I've put into what I do. But I think like- you know, they say that luck is where perfect preparation meets perfect opportunity. And like, I am perfectly prepared at all times and I have way more opportunities to take advantage of.
0: That is completely fair. <laughs> and again, just the fact that you recognize that I think speaks well to, to you.
1: I try to wield and, it for good whenever I can.
0: Sure, sure.
1: But I do wield it for myself often.
0: Looking out for number one is something that I am not mad at. Okay. It takes some people longer to learn that. I mean, the important thing is to do it in a way that's not detrimental to others.
1: That's a a very nice way of putting how I feel.
0: Thank you. If you don't take care of you, no one else is going to take care of you. And no one goes with you when you die. So also true. (laughs) So it's important to look out for yourself without being a dick.
1: Yes. I try to walk through the world non-destructively. That's,
0: again, I, we can
1: just trade. It's
0: That's a very nice way of saying what I was trying
1: to say. <laughs> you know, in terms of bumps and stuff, so I, I worked pretty consistently from when I graduated college in 2012 until the summer of 2015. I was pretty much employed in musical theater or straight theater or TV film for that time. You know, I didn't make a lot of money, but I paid my bills doing it. And I I created a secondary career in graphic design and website design so that I could work. You know, a lot of the problems with theater specifically is that the paychecks are terrible. And so a lot of people, especially people who have a ton of student debt to get through the colleges that give them access to that, can't afford to then take those jobs. And it is a massive problem of inequity in my industry. And I did take on a good amount of debt to go to school. Because again, I didn't actually come from the money that like I was raised around. And so like I went to a very expensive private school for four years. And that took a lot of loans on me and a lot of loans on my parents. And that's something I'm very thankful to them for doing. And I knew that if I wanted to progress my career, I needed to be not choosy. I needed to kind of Take whatever I could get so long as it was a step forward. And if that meant getting paid 75 bucks a week and a bag of chips, like I needed to be able to do it. And so I started kind of a second career from my computer that I could do from anywhere. And so that way, if I was at a theater where I couldn't quite afford to be there, I could make enough money to pay my bills despite the theater. So in 2015, I joined the theater union which is was very exciting for me it's what I've been kind of pushing for my whole career but there's kind of a there's a, a stereotype called the equity slump and basically when you're a theater actor you're either union or non-union And you have different casting directors, or you're just up for different tracks in union theater. There are roles that have to go to union actors, which means if you're a non union actor, you're fighting for different things. So when you join the union, you're now competing only against union actors, many of whom have Broadway credits and way more experience. And so you kind of go back to the bottom of the barrel again. And so the equity slump is like once you leave that non union pool and you join the union pool, you're starting over, and people aren't willing to give you a job until they've tested you and made sure you're good and you're not going to reflect poorly on them. And so, you know, I I was ready for the equity slump and it hit me pretty hard right at the, you know, I stopped working pretty instantly. And it was towards the end of 2015, I was getting really fed up. I was doing workshops of a new musical that was very commercial by a very commercial entity that I won't name. And I wasn't doing anything else. And I discovered that I'd had the privilege of having been employed so often that I was never getting sick of theater because I was always being creative, not interviewing and auditioning. And when my life was only auditioning, I found myself creatively destroyed. And I started putting together with a buddy of mine who was having similar feelings about his career path, but as a composer, where he was only doing this commercial work that didn't feel artistically fulfilling, I, I... we put together an album of 10 classic show tunes from 1960 or earlier, but reimagined for today's radio. And then we put together like a cast of Broadway people and, and some really great musicians and we made this this album. And so that became kind of my creative outlet so that I could I felt comfortable being creatively fulfilled somewhere and I could dedicate myself to kind of soul-crushing audition life so that I was like still comfortable being in the industry. And it was right around that time that my dad ended up in the hospital. With a, he had a really rare form of leukemia, Oof. and he had been in a car accident, and he missed a treatment. And because he had been in the car accident, he'd had a concussion, and he just missed a treatment. And he was in the hospital like five days later with pneumonia and like, like crashing. Like Holy one treatment shit. missed and just like straight crash. So he was in the hospital for about a month where the treatments for pneumonia – if he they had to stop treating his cancer because the cancer treatments killed his immune system, which would have let the pneumonia go nuts. Right. And the treatments for pneumonia were killing him because they were having to try and cure it so fast so that they could get back to the cancer. And so he went into the hospital like right after New Year 2016. And four weeks later, I went out there just to visit him for the weekend. I was kind of running his carrying bridge and the doctors took me and my brother aside and were like, There's there's no chance here. Like there's a one in a million chance that he survives the pneumonia. And when he survives the pneumonia, he's going to need a bone marrow transplant. And like to get a bone marrow transplant, you have to be healthy, but he's not healthy because he has pneumonia. So there's like a one in a million chance the bone marrow transplant works. And so like, if we successfully pull off two one in a million chances, he, he might survive. And every other option is him dying, like very much in pain terribly. And my brother and I were like, absolutely not like, let's make him comfortable. And we took him off life support and he passed away shortly thereafter. And so I left New York and I moved to Pennsylvania into his empty house. And I started taking care of his estate and and selling his house and handling that. My brother was, was working abroad at the time. So there wasn't like a lot of ability for us to co-align there. And then five days after my dad's funeral, My mom went in because she thought she had food poisoning and turned out she had a tumor on her ovary and they, they opened her up to do kind of a routine hysterectomy and discovered that it was actually a tumor that went from like her hip to her neck and was wrapped around like every vital organ. And it was really bad. And for the next year, you know, there were surgeries and chemo and all that. And she was like doing great and beating it. So in 2016, after I sold my dad's house in June, I moved back to New York to try and like start over. And it was while I had been at my dad's that someone heard that album that I made and reached out to me, someone from my stunt past, and was like, hey, I make a web series about vampire slayers. We've always wanted to do a musical version. Do you have any interest? And I was like, hell yeah. And so I started writing this action comedy rock musical web series about New York City vampire slayers. And we were in the process of shooting it. You know, I used some of my dad's life insurance money to fund it. Fun fact back to loans. I used my dad's life insurance money to pay off my student loans. And I got a letter from my college because they had had one of my like six loans. And they were like, congratulations, you paid off your loan. And in less than five years out of school, would you be willing to write a letter to the current students kind of talking about how you saved for that? And I wrote them back a letter that just said patricide. (laughs) And uh And they called me and they were like, we are so sorry. And I was like, guys, you know what I went to college for. If I had made enough to pay off these loans, you would have heard of me. So I was shooting this thing and I was in a class in New York and I was having like really bad spring hay fever and I was coughing a lot and I couldn't get together. And I was in this class and all of a sudden my voice just like it just stopped working. And I was like, that's weird. And so I went to a doctor and discovered that I had a, a massive polyp on my left vocal cord oh, that geez. had hem- that had hemorrhaged. And so like my throat was just like a bloody mess. And it was going to require a ton of steroids and a bunch of surgery to get done. And so I, I had that done right at the end of August. And that was like a five-month recovery that I couldn't audition. So I was like back to being sidelined for the rest of 2016. So I kept writing and I started producing a podcast that called At the Table. And our podcast produces new plays from emerging playwrights as audio dramas. And I got to work with some really cool actors and I, I partnered up with some of my best friends. And it was a really great, again, way for me to stay connected to being creative at a time that I wasn't allowed to do what I wanted to do. And we released the web series and, and it was pretty good and well-received and, and people really enjoyed it. And I, so we came up towards the end of 2016 now, which was just kind of a wash. And I was cleared to like fully start auditioning again in January, 2017. And like three weeks later, I got a call from my mom and my brother that her cancer had been declared terminal and You know, they'd given her six months and and that was it. And I decided like, you know, with my dad, it was so fast, right? Like I went out there on a Wednesday in 2016 to spend the weekend – at a hotel nearby and ended up taking my dad off life support and not returning to Brooklyn. And I got maybe 72 hours to talk to him before it was over. And I didn't want to have that same experience with my mom, especially because I I was closer to my mom since I had lived alone with her through high school. And so I packed up my Brooklyn apartment and I moved to Maine and I moved into a house in Maine with my mom and my brother. And we just all lived together while she kind of deteriorated. And then she passed away in May of 2017. And I, Went back to New York for a callback for a Broadway show for a casting director that had given me a few callbacks in the past. And she looked at me at one, the audition was terrible and everyone knew what was going on. Like everyone knew that I, I had been going through this and they knew that I wasn't, my heart probably wasn't gonna be in it, but they told me to come in anyway to keep like in people's minds. And the casting director who I had known looked at me and she was like, I'm sorry. I just, I can't remember how we know each other. And I was like, oh, I've been gone for two years and the industry's kind of forgotten who I was. And that's fine. It means I get to reemerge on my own terms. And what I don't wanna do is this right now. And I packed up and I moved back to Maine and I rented the house for the rest of the year. And I wrote a second season of that musical web series to kind of stay creative and I got a job working for a wonderful woman named Megan Tan, who uh, is the showrunner of a podcast called Millennial, which was a Radiotopia show. And I was a, a, a co-producer on that show for a while until I, could, I convinced her. She had asked me when she hired me, like, I'm thinking about shutting down the show. I don't want to shut down the show. Will you come on the team and help me figure this out? And um, we got a a couple of months of working together and I took her aside and I was like, you need to shut down the show. (laughs) Like it's burning you out. You are a miserable person. Like as your friend, I'm telling you, this needs to be done. You need to take care of yourself. So I returned from that experience of producing a major podcast and we made the second season of our web series. We released it Halloween of 2017, which is the same day I moved back to New York. And uh, I just didn't wanna be an actor. I wanted to promote my projects and and kind of find my footing again. And I got a taxi license and I drove a yellow cab for a little bit. And uh, I ended up getting a temp job at a cryptocurrency company and that it turned into a seven month gig. And And I was promoting my web series kind of around the world while I was doing it and going to film festivals and really loving life. And I just found myself in this path where I had a side career that paid me my bills and then some. And that and then some all got reinvested into films and podcasts and music and all of those things were being pretty successful. And I just decided to see myself through. So the last time I was paid to be a theater actor was in 2015. July 20th would have been my last contract day. And it's been a little, it's, you know, five and a half years since. And and I've just made an entirely new career as a creative who's also an actor. And I hope to return to kind of what I had before, but my path was really predicated on the world's in the way. I don't want to lose connection to being creative. So I'm going to go create. And then those creations became things that I loved that I needed to give the time and the space to be successful. And here I am five years later doing that.
0: Wow. That's a hell of an arc.
1: It was a weird, I mean, honestly, it's been, I graduated college eight years ago and my first three and a half, four years were Work as a musical theater actor and nothing else, and then the last four years have been bury my parents and become a relatively successful indie creative.
0: I gotta ask, what other than being creative got you through that like eighteen to twenty four month period where you had medical issues, your parents had medical issues and passed away? Because that feels Massive. like it would break a lot of people. I one broke, of those things.
1: Yeah. I broke pretty hard. I did. I will say that being a creative is just about the only thing that got me through. Now I have a lot of friends, but I pushed those friends away because it was really hard to be 26 and a quote unquote orphan. Like it was really hard. Like I knew people, I know people whose parents passed before mine did, but I didn't know anyone who'd lost both. And so I didn't, I, I felt like I was having a life experience. The only people I could relate to were like my 45 and up friends who had experienced this at some point in their life. But that felt weird because I didn't feel like I was their their like peer. And so it was either like I was talking to people that I felt like a kid in front of, or I was talking to fellow kids who just, I didn't feel like could get me. And so I really shut myself away. And and the way that I survived was I create with people. I never take on projects alone. I don't lock myself in a closet and hide. Everything I've ever made is with a collaborator, at least one, usually two, Close collaborators, who I was talking to two, three hours a day, and though and just diving into addressing the hole in my heart that was missing being creative allowed me to fill enough that the other hole in my heart I could take my time figuring out. I I I, I will also say I got through it with a good amount of whiskey. Whiskey and I are friends. I've lived with enough alcoholics to know that I'm not one, but I could be one. So I'm careful.
0: <laughs> I, to- <laughs> I mean, I relate to that a hundred percent.
1: I have an addictive personality. So, so it was, and that's part of the creative, right? I'm addicted to making things. And I just, I, I've just, de- I decided that that was a really healthy way to keep me on my passions while I dealt with
0: everything else. You know, I'm not, I certainly do not have any, right to tell anyone what kind of, of habit alcohol, what kind of habit drinking alcohol is because I do my fair share of drinking, you know? And sometimes, look. Post-pandemic, we'll meet up in our shared neighborhood and do that. And and have, have some whiskey. Yeah. I am also a huge fan of whiskey. Mm. So Good man. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, it, it's important to manage it. Yeah. But as everybody says, all things in moderation.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm not really drinking because I'm here in a house in Maine with my girlfriend who I love and adore, and I just haven't wanted to. I talk a lot about the pivot of my life and how a lot of people say, well, it sounds like you ended up where you needed to be. And and I bristle at that because I think I, I have ended up in a space I never wanted to be, and I'm not sure I want to be now. I would like to go back to my life as an actor. I would like to go back to the world of auditioning for TV shows and films and Broadway theater. And I would love for that to be the only thing I do. And and it's just not. And my mother had a life philosophy that she said a lot that I have a a smaller version tattooed on my arm, which is if you're in a job interview and they ask if you speak French, say we and then Google it. And I sort of live that life. You know, I'll be working at a job and they'll say, like, hey, do you know Photoshop? And I'm like, absolutely, because I'll know enough about Photoshop to do whatever it is they need me to do. And I'll learn it by the time it matters. And that same philosophy has sort of led to my career path is like, I, I'm not one to sprint at a locked door. I'd rather just walk around the wall and look for a different open one. Like every part of my path, be it podcasting, audio journalism, filmmaking, composing, fight direction, acting, like every part of it is also that I put myself in the best situation that when I'm ready to return to acting, it I'm not starting over. I'm coming in from a career that I've established myself. And I get annoyed at the idea that like I'm where I'm supposed to be because where I'm supposed to be implies that my parents needed to die to get there. And I think that sucks. And I don't like that mentality and I don't like thinking about it. But I do like acknowledging that like this is where I am and I'm very proud of what I've been able to achieve given what was dealt to me.
0: The idea of tragedy being kind of written in the stars for you to achieve a goal just sort of feels... I hate it. Icky. I
1: hate it. And it's something people say to me all the time. And, you know, my personal politics aside, like, I'm not a religious person. My mother was very Episcopalian, which means she was also not a religious person. Sorry, (laughs) Episcopalians. And my my views on death are kind of like, when you die, you die. And that's very comforting to me. And when people are like, well, your parents are always with you. I'm always like, no, they're not. They're gone. And that sucks. And I think about them every day. And and that is wonderful. But like, I, I'm not a person that kind of thinks in the spiritual sense of the way the universe wants to talk to me. I, I like imagining that when I die, it's done. I like imagining that the universe isn't talking to me. We're all just working really hard to be better people for the sake of those around us. I don't want to go through some litmus test checklist for the next life. I want to know that I lived a good life on this earth because I wanted to. So for me that this kind of adjustment development has in and, and really this new world i find myself in is the thing that i'm happiest with the most is that i allowed my path to be controlled by me so that when it was out of my control i was still able to hold on to the things that mattered to me
0: a lot to unpack there and i you know your feelings on religion are somewhat similar to mine I and mean, i was raised catholic and I'm also a believer that when you die, your body dies. And I think the way that you sort of achieve immortality or whatever it is you want to call it is by the people around you, your loved ones adopting behaviors or remembering things that you said that meant a lot to them and kind of moving forward from there. But in terms of afterlife and all that shit, like it sounds... Pleasant, I guess, but that's that has no basis in re- reality at all.
1: I want to enjoy this life. I don't right. want to view this as a testing ground.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to wait. I mean, I think a lot of people do use it as a testing ground. They're like, "Well, when I pass away, you know, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "No, this is this is our opportunity. This is our chance. You have today. Yeah, use it. <laughs> yeah, use the moment. If you, what is one thing that one thing?" you want to do differently sort of in the near future one.
1: I take on too much. I am a person who gets so excited by ideas that I see them all through. And that means that I let a lot of them suffer. And I'm not a person who will ever not execute. Like I'm not a person to let balls drop. I'm not a person to, to miss a deadline. And because of that, I push people away and I work myself until I I'm, despondent and I'm trying to learn that it's okay to have two things that you love and having an idea doesn't mean you have to do it. Or loving someone else's idea doesn't mean that you have to join them on that path. So a big part of my life is trying to figure out how I can be satisfied with where I am instead of constantly looking to move into a new space and that blowing up where I am. And that's something that's really hard for me. I take on too much. I also, in in 2021, it goes back to what we were saying before but i really i really hope that we learn some lessons from this terrible shared trauma that we've all experienced and the shared trauma of of covid is is just as just as hard to talk about as the shared trauma of like collective injustice that the world decided to take on. And the fact that they came in the same year is so scary because it it means more to me because it means people are in such a bad place everywhere from racial, religion, sexuality, gender, a long litmus of reasons that have never affected me. Like I check all the boxes on the privilege bingo and to know that they're willing to risk their lives in the face of a deadly pandemic to fight for these things right now. Means more to me thinking we need to be focused there than anything else. And so in 2021, like, you know, it's my big goals are like continue to try and wield my privilege for good and listen a lot more and acknowledge that like I don't need to be at the forefront of some things. I can be an active supporter and making that space for other people to lead is actually how I can be a better ally in many spaces. like No one needs this guy trying to be the front and center fighter in everything because it's just another way of appropriating someone else's story.
0: That's an interesting sort of dichotomy there because on one hand, personally, I believe that the people who have the most privilege should speak the loudest because they are most likely to be heard by the masses the powers that be yeah, yeah. on the other hand <clears throat> i believe that those of us who lack privilege in a lot of ways uh, particularly people like me who are intersectional should should be speaking the loudest and be heard the loudest because we have the experience to break all of this stuff down so it's a weird kind of like who should speak first it's who should speak first versus who will be heard the most. And I'm not sure where exactly that meets comfortably in the middle.
1: And 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 I think that is the question, right? Like that's gonna always be the question. For me personally, what I'm hoping is the answer I've found right now is that I'll use my voice when needed and I will always stand behind the voices that should be the one talking anyway. And my goal is not to be a person who says like, well, I'm gonna remove myself from this situation and that's how I'm being helpful. That's insane. I never wanna remove myself from the situation, but I hope hope that the outcome someday is that people are given the space and the support and the training and the societal push to feel as confident talking about the things that matter to them as i do every day and therefore my job is to put that confidence behind other people so they can be confident in their own words and rather than me co-opt their words and hope that they that i don't get them wrong it, 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 again it's back to well-intentioned white people right like i feel like so often the white people that i that i interact with so frequently are trying to filter hard words through their own comfort zones. Mm. And part of that has to do with their own belief that because they have the voice that people will listen to, they should be the one speaking up, but they're unwilling to speak up if they haven't gotten comfortable with the language yet. And I don't think the answer is figure out how to make them comfortable with the language. And I don't think the answer is make them figure out how to speak the language that they're uncomfortable with. For me, the answer has always been elevate the voices that are making me uncomfortable and support them in that discomfort, if I can.
0: Good at making words up on the fly. I appreciate
1: it. It's a superpower. (laughs) Oh, uh, I wanted to talk about, because I think it ties into what we're talking about and it's not in this email. This new project, in spite of everything, I love eulogies and I hate obituaries. And I think in a time of collective trauma, Group catharsis is something so important, and I've been working on this idea for a while. I think something that, that has helped me is that I worked very hard in my traumas to find meaning. In those traumas, I worked really hard to find whatever meaning I needed for me. And that didn't mean like find meaning in my mom's death. It was like find meaning somewhere so that I could cope with my mom's death. Okay. It was very important to me to find something that really struck with me. And part of that I think has to do with because so much of my heart and soul is built in being a creative, I was able to throw myself into that. But I think it's also important to, to recognize that a lot of people don't have that experience. And so like a lot of people are like, Oh, well, you got through it by creating. Should I do that? And my answer is like, only if that speaks to you, like you don't need to make things in order to have catharsis. But I think finding catharsis is just so important in all of these, like, uh, I I find a lot of catharsis in when, when I'm feeling down or when I'm at a holiday or when I have a memory or when I'm at the anniversary of my parents passing or whatever it is, I try to write a memory. I try to to script a thought and, and bring myself the catharsis of getting it out of my brain. And so for me, like if we're talking about what is the pivot and how have I been able to, to find a new path, it's been in, I've been very fortunate to find whatever sense of catharsis I need at a given moment to to feel at peace with the shit around me and I I would encourage people to look for that catharsis however they need for a lot of people it's groups and that's been hard in in this I have a very good friend whose brother is an addict and he was in AA and and they shut down AA meetings because of a pandemic and he ended up committing suicide. Oh, my goodness. Um, by overdose. I actually don't know that it's intentional. So he passed okay. away from overdose and I don't know that it was suicide. And I think there's that in this current time. Finding ways to have to check in on those around you, whether you know them or not, and, and finding ways to take care of yourself through catharsis and 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 whatever that is, at least for me, has been the only way. And it's why 2020 hasn't hit me so hard is I feel like I spent a lot of time figuring out how to find catharsis in trauma in a way that other people haven't had to. And what I've found is that it's often prescribed in a one size fits all do this because it worked for X and therefore it'll work for Y. And I don't think my path would work for anyone other than me. And what I've learned from that is therefore everyone's path has to be different. And therefore you have to figure out how you can listen to yours.
0: Does it help to have people around whether virtually or in 3d form, not even necessarily to talk about whatever grief you're going through Does it help you personally to reach out to people, to have people around you that reach out to you? Like how much value do you place into community?
1: I place a ton of value in it. And it's the thing that I accidentally forget about most often. I, I place nothing above it in my heart and there are people that i have not checked in on that i feel terrible about it every day there's a great podcast called reply all on gimlet media and reply all has this thing called email debt forgiveness day
0: which is on that
1: day you get to email that person you've been snoozing the email on so long because now you're afraid it's been so long you can't you can't reply right And it's a day that we all just collectively agree that we're going to email out and say it's email debt forgiveness day yours is my email that i have debt on and i'm sorry and let's pick it back up and i'm trying very hard to give myself that same space to reach out to people that i feel like i've accidentally abandoned in this pandemic so i think the 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 long answer is that and the short answer is i put a lot of value on community And community shares most of its letters with communication. And regardless of if it's good or bad, if you can bring yourself to communicate anyway, you can have community.
0: And send those emails, man.
1: Send those emails. Email debt forgiveness. Shout out reply all. I don't know when email debt forgiveness day is this year, but call it tomorrow.
0: (laughs) I'm very big on communication, email, text, whatever. And there are people that I just forget to reach out to and it's completely unintentional but i think whether you reach out to somebody the next day or two weeks later or a month later or 6 months later just the fact that you're not leaving a relationship hanging in the air yeah speaks volumes
1: yeah and and part of that for me is i i i my community is almost i've built it too wide it's been really hard to keep track of everyone and i sure. get overwhelmed and i think There's a lot of value in recognizing you don't have to take care of everyone, but you should take (laughs) care of a few. And if they take care of a few, everyone will get covered over time.
0: Damn right. Community and communication. I literally just realized how closely related those two words are. They are two of the most important words I know. We are nothing without those around us, so it's been really important to me, especially these last few years, to communicate openly with those that I care about and to build and cultivate my network of close friends and chosen family. I'd like to thank Ned for sharing his story and for highlighting how much community and communication mean to him. You can find more information on Ned at his website, neddonovan.com, and at neddonovan, no periods or underscores or pluses or anything like that, on Instagram and Twitter. So this podcast is all about helping men become better men, sharing stories, talking about being open and practicing, being truthful and honest and having feelings and all that good stuff, but done in a way that's maybe not so, I want to say, obvious about it or, or it, I don't want it to feel like a, a, an after-school special or anything like that. It's just people conversing, trying to make the world a better place, trying to make themselves better people. So if you support that mission, if you want men to be better, better men, if you want people to be better people, make sure you rate, you subscribe, and you follow this podcast. Uh, we really appreciate your patronage. Uh, we appreciate you listening and spreading the word. I am on social media. Instagram is DetoxPodGuy. Twitter is Joseph. You can email me, even because people still do that by the way at detoxpod at gmail.com look forward to hearing from you if you have a guest that you'd like to suggest if you want to be on the show yourself just hit me up I am here and I am waiting for you standing by the hotline waiting for the phone to ring so you can tell me A. how much you love detoxicity and B. how much you want to be on the show or you know somebody who wants to be on the show or you have constructive criticism or whatever I just love communicating with people and uh, I'm not being sarcastic about that last part (laughs) Also not sarcastic about this, as I record this, we are still in the middle of the COVID-19 hellscape, so I really, really want to urge you to, you know, just protect yourself, protect the others around you, wear a mask, uh, social distance, do all that good stuff. Just in the name of empathy and being kind to one another, it's important that we all stay safe and healthy, so please do so. Thank you for listening.